I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's remarkable guest is Adam Curry. Adam was one of the VJs, video jockeys, of MTV back in the 1980s. In this position, he interviewed some of the most popular musicians of the time. This includes Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney. Adam is an early adopter and pioneer. He embraced the web and podcasting long before other people. In fact, he helped make podcasting a thing by collaborating with Dave Weiner on podcasting technology. He also created one of the very first podcasts, The Daily Source Code. In 2005, Steve Jobs previewed Apple's podcasting efforts by playing The Daily Source Code on stage at D, the most exclusive tech conference. It was a huge deal when Steve used the product like this. Adam also started companies along the way that offered services such as web designing, video sharing, incubating, and podcasting. He currently co-hosts the No Agenda podcast with John Dvorak. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. Yes, you got that right. Remarkable is sponsored by Remarkable. I have version 2 in my hot little hands, and it's so good. A very impressive upgrade. Here's how I use it. 1. Taking notes while I'm interviewing a podcast guest. 2. Taking notes while being brief about speaking gigs. 3. Drafting the structure of keynote speeches. 4. Storing manuals for the gizmos that I buy. 5. Roughing out drawings for things like surfboards, surfboard sheds, and office layouts. 6. Wrapping my head around complex ideas with diagrams and flowcharts. This is a remarkably well thought out product. It doesn't try to be all things to all people, but it takes notes better than anything I've used. Check out the recent reviews of the latest version. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. And now, here's the remarkable Adam Curry, podcaster, VJ, and pioneer. August 1st, 1981 is when MTV kicked off. I didn't come in until 87, as they had gone through the first wave and they were doing an expansion. And that expansion meant that they were going on prime time cable, basic cable, which was 40 channels. And that meant that that would be available everywhere. And back in the day, people, only people who are old enough to remember this, but cable was a joke. It was like, nah, it's not real TV. No one's going to advertise on it. No one cares about it. I mean, they had the the Ace Awards, and then they later had the Cable Ace Awards. And each of these cable systems was like their own little fiefdom. The, you know, the owner would be a typical guy with the with a Cadillac with horns on the front. I'm like, yeah, it's my wife. Uh, say hello, MTV man. So we'd also have to tour the affiliates to kind of make sure that they kept us on their stations, on their cable networks. Uh, so it was real Mickey Mouse. And I was living in the Netherlands, and they recruited me from there. I was doing television over there. And, and I came from like a state broadcaster. So and we had 14 cameras, five makeup rooms. Like it was all gunmetal gray. I mean, none of it was was spiffy or anything, but we had it, you know, it, you know, proper camera operator and a cable puller, all the stuff you'd want. And MTV was yeah, basically a studio. We shared the studio at the time with, I think, the Sally Jesse Raphael show. This was on uh, Unitel Video on 57th Street in uh, Manhattan. And, uh, and there was a couple lights. The lighting director would come in once a week and you'd say, okay, stand in your spot. And he'd tap the light. Okay, this is good. I'll see you in a week or two. We had no makeup, no wardrobe. We did all that ourselves. It was really, really guerrilla television, very low rent. And 
it was kind of being run by radio people like a radio station at the time. So it was, yeah, I fit right in. I, I, I felt great, although um, I never really connected well with the uh, management. They, I think they, they thought I had, you know, I had too many aspirations. I had all kinds of things written into my contract they didn't like, like I could do radio and that they just thought that was ridiculous. Wow, you going to be a VJ or a DJ? What do you want to be? I said, well, I can't be both. Um, you know, there were other things. Like I was in the music meeting as the only on-air talent where they decided what they would accept to play on the channel. So, you know, and, and some producer things I'd negotiated because they came to me. So that gave me an upper hand. But it was not the the, the drug-fueled uh, bosom babes uh, rolling around the studio type vibe that you might think it was. It was <laughs> quite sedentary, quite tedious, in fact, because we would record um, each day of, uh, of MTV. We would record in, not in real time, but just the segments. So we never actually saw the videos while we were taping it. We didn't, you know, we had seen them before. Oh, yeah, we just, you see, I mean, you'll see, go to on YouTube, you see me, I'd be like, I'm looking off camera. I'm literally looking at like a floor manager or a, a production assistant. Like, all right, that, that's great to see uh, Bon Jovi up there. And then, you know, I'll talk about the next video. And then here it comes. And I look off to the side. I'm just looking into darkness. And then they would literally, this is so pre-internet. So they would take these big tapes, these umatic tapes, which is like a big Betamax or like a big, yeah, like a big Betamax kind of would look like. And they put him in a car service, drive it to Long Island to the network operations center where we had guys all day long who would insert like Adam Curry, uh, 12 p.m. segment A, and he'd play it. And then he'd click the other machine and play the video. And then he'd fast forward, queue up the next segment, Adam Curry, 12 p.m. segment B, and he'd play that. And so it was kind of a, a playout system like a radio station with with cart machines. And it was really, really, really low rent. And I was on the internet at the time and they had a Wang computer. I'm like, wow, these guys are ancient. It was crazy. They were they were doing the word processing on the Wang and sending it down from the studio. Whoa, it was great. <laughs> you're bursting my bubble here, Adam. So you're telling me that you, you didn't just watch the video and then react to it. It was... It's all acting. All guy. that was fake. Oh, all acting. All of it was fake, man. All of it. Every single bit of it. Yeah. Um, and this is why I rarely do mainstream things anymore. I know how it works. I'm always disappointed. I like. What, I remember when Michael Jackson died, and I got all these calls like CBS Evening News. Oh, I want to talk to you. I'm like, okay, you know, that's fine. I was doing other stuff at the time. It wasn't on MTV anymore. And spend three hours, interview, some walking shots. And then you watch at night, it's like literally 15 seconds of me going like, he'll be missed. You know, it's like all the other stuff I said was, I'm like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And, you know, and by, I'm so spoiled by podcasting and the freedom that we have. There's a lot of disillusionment there, but man, does it work? It does, does the mainstream trickery just work beautifully? It's, it's a, everything is a great product that I see. It really is. It's not truthful, but it's a great product. Back then, did the experts scoff at the idea that there would be only music videos? Did they say, the American public doesn't want this. They want movies. They want Disney specials. Just to have two-minute videos over and over again is not going to cut it? 
interesting. Again, it was it was really radio people who drove this, and they said, "Oh, we can run this like a radio station at VJs, and they'll do shifts." And then basically, as a VJ, you're one step lower on the rung from curable lepers, incurable lepers, than down there it's VJ. <laughs> so they really want just interchangeable talent that you can just pull in and rotate out and have them look pretty and do their thing. Don't bump into the furniture, and we'll play the songs. But something else happened, and it, and the revolution really came from creatives. So the first thing was these videos, directors were making videos and they were doing them on really small budgets and this became an industry. And so the first thing that had to happen was we had to legitimize what was going on. So every MTV video, you would see the director and the director would get a credit at the at the beginning and the end of the video. And that was not only an uh, interesting negotiation that we went through with certain guilds, but it also really gave legitimacy to the product. And and then you got celebrity kind of directors who would jump into the game. You know, there was the people directing for each other. So that really became a, quite a thing. And you know, then with John Landis and the you know, Thriller video, all of these things really built up into this is an actual product that stands by itself, which ultimately also became MTV's demise as we know it. When music videos were so commoditized that they found themselves competing with other networks for for premieres. So the next Michael Jackson video was going to BET. And so Viacom, MTV Networks, they said, you know what, let's just buy BET because we can't have these guys cutting into our business here. And uh, so they did that. And then the commoditization just continued, particularly as online started coming into play. And they saw that they could get a 0.3 rating for music videos maybe a 1.0 in prime time with some special programming like Dial MTV or what later became uh, TRL Live. But you did a a long form programming like MTV uh, Beach House or MTV Real World or Sporting Fool or Remote Control, the game show. Now you're talking a three rating. And that was it. That was the smartest decision they could have made. Sad for what it was, but the, the music video was no longer a viable business. And so they just went straight into, we're targeting this audience and we're going to go after them 100%. And which is a lot of it is low hanging fruit, teen moms, like it's crazy, crazy. It's a lot of reality shows. And so the joke, the meme that goes around the 40th anniversary is happy birthday MTV, 40 years and 14 years of music. You know, all the rest was, was different kinds of programming. But it's nice because it's something that, our generation, and that really is older millennials, I would say, up until, uh, you know, well, maybe it's just the older millennials and some, some boomers in there as well. That was something we shared. It, it will, it's like the rotary phones on the wall. You, you can show it to people. They'll be like, that was like a whole thing. And you stand here waiting for it and you, you grab the cord and go around the door into the basement. Really? So it's kind of that, that is, it's hard to understand, but I'm so happy that that I was a part of it and I was there for seven and a half years. And to this day, you know, I'll be in just the most odd circumstances, you know, maybe a CEO and then they figure it out. Like, wait a minute, I choose a guy from, uh, and then, you know, the shirt opens up Metallica t-shirts on underneath. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so it's, it's kind of a cultish thing at this point, but I'm, I'm very, very happy that I was a part of it. Wow. And tell me, how did MTV go from this, scrappy startup held together by duct tape into really defining the culture. First, I will say Tom Freston was really important in that. He, I feel that he led that uh, 
He led MTV in his own Tom Freston way. He was a very, very interesting guy. Very, very rock and roll, but complete suit. You wouldn't know it. But, you know, you look into his background. He was, you know, did import export with Afghanistan. It's like, okay, I know enough about Tom. This guy, he's rock and roll. And, and he had a good connection with the music industry. He understood what they wanted because we were just, MTV is just a part of the system. And it became that very, very quickly with all the negotiations and what goes on and who do we put in on special rotation to hook up someone else. All the favors are all there. And it was, uh, you know, it was top 40 radio sliding towards hip hop, the artists and the and the video artists who put it all together became something they they made the words come alive the videos at at a certain point it was just the budgets were crazy and record companies would still put them up and uh, put up those kinds of budgets and that you know that started to change over time so more creativity came in the technology changed final cut pro that was instrumental in uh for MTV music videos in the latter part of I'd say the 90s that was it was like what nonlinear video editing and I can do this at home and I can I remember going to CBS Sony Records in two thousand it was two thousand five or something. I was gonna see if I four maybe, see if I could do anything with the music business with podcasting. And I'm in the lobby there. Now in in Manhattan there's a second floor lobby and that's where kind of everyone waits until you're called up to God to go meet with whoever you're going to meet with. And I couldn't believe what I saw. It was like a hundred hip hop groups and they're all filming stuff and they're, you know, they got soundtracks running. So I guess they're doing a part of the videos that they're going to get their record contract. And Simon LeBon from Duran Duran is sitting there waiting next to me. And we're looking at all this and all of a sudden the lady comes on the speaker at uh, Mr. Simon Lebon, Mr. Simon Lebon, you can go up now, Mr. Simon Lebon. Like, Simon Lebon, you know who he is, and the whole thing was just mayhem, guys. Like, I don't recognize this industry. I, I don't know who's making the money, where it's going, and of course, you know, the music business in general has really been stripped to its bare bones with Spotify and streaming and all the uh, types of deals that were done to keep the broadcasters rich and musicians starving. <laughs> kind of the same story as always. Nothing's changed. No, not really. Not really. <laughs> and and were you part of the I want my MTV promotion? No. That, no, I was no, not. That, not that, at all? That was before me. That was that was oh. the very first when they just started off and they needed to get cable stations to to carry the signal. That was the thing. You had to clear just like radio, you had to clear the stations. And you had to talk to all these guys. And so um, I, I, ah, I should know who came up with this. But the I Want My MTV was an easy one. You got all the, especially the British guys to say, you got yeah. Bowie, the Stones, you got Madonna, you got Billy Idol. It was all the, the icons of the moment. And they loved it too. It was, you know, they were part of it. it. It was very, very community type thing. And it was heartfelt, even though there was money behind it. And the intent was to create a $4 billion brand, which it is or at least annual revenues. So it, it was, it behooved everybody. It was, it was, it was fun to watch, but the early days, no, that was not me. I was not a part of that. I wasn't part of uh, spring break. This was, this is a good one. So spring break became famous MTV spring break coverage, but MTV didn't want to just go to Florida and watch kids belly flop. That was never the idea. The idea was how do we get Budweiser to advertise on the channel? 
And I was a part of this pitch. So we went to Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, and we said, look, your beer and is down there in Florida and all these other places for spring break. We'll do wall-to-wall coverage. We'll have big inflatable bottles of Bud everywhere. And they went for it. And then, you know, then, of course, we had, I wound up with me on the, the, the Bud Light boat with Spuds McKenzie. But OK, you know, but we did whatever we had to do. And that was purely to get them on the station and it turned into a you know, kind of unforgettable programming that they repeated over and over again. Man, you're, you're bursting so many of my bubbles. Adam. No, but this is good. I mean, it, 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 it was really fun to do. It was it was real. The, the realest thing, I think, was the Video Music Awards. Those were live. They went out live, the early ones. Later on, it became a little too contrived. And it was so good, in fact, that the VJs were not actually invited. If it was in Los Angeles, you had to fly yourself out. You had to buy your own ticket. They were horrible to us. It was like, no, 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 this is special programming. This is not for you. But look, the people watch this all day long. You know? So you get to do one little segment or something like outside. I'm standing outside here. All the stars are inside. I'm the schmuck VJ on the outside. So, as a VJ, you basically watch these videos and then you had to just make it up on the fly. You weren't meeting with them. You weren't interviewing. How did oh, no, this no, work? no, no. I mean, there was I, there was plenty of, of interviews and stuff that would then get chopped up. I had several shows throughout the years that would include, would basically be six segments or yeah, six segments in an hour, of which three could be two minutes. And just a typical, it's like typical television because you got to sell more Skittles. So we do that. And those things were great. Uh, and I loved doing that many, many interviews, but it was never really like a live, a live show, except for Mardi Gras was live. We would cut live to Mardi Gras, which was really fun back before you got killed in the streets. Um, <laughs> some MTV's uh, spring break was live. And I did it. The afternoons were live for a while with uh, dial MTV where people would call in and request their, their favorite video. So no, it it was it was actually a lot of fun, and it, and they were in general highly scripted. So every VJ was highly scripted. There was a teleprompter, and I and I just said, just leave it empty because I'll just make it up. I know what's going on because I was researching. This is I had found the internet in eighty eight, eighty seven, eighty eight. And I was on on uh, Gopher. I was poking around. I was looking at news you were on groups. Gopher? I, yeah, I'm on. I was. I got a slip account through Panics in uh, New York City, and I figured out how to set up that that slip connection. And you got your PPP stack and all that stuff. And then you fire up the terminal. Oh, okay, there it is. And then you log into the Gopher server and check around. But I really had more fun with the news groups and um, and email. Email was phenomenal because my audience was college students who A, didn't count in the ratings at all. They, so they weren't even, you didn't even know how many were watching. Uh, they were watching, but they had very different ideas about what videos they liked. So I'd get feedback from them. And that's how I ultimately set up my own Gopher server and registered MTV.com to run it. And I would pitch that on the air from time to time. And so people, I'd put little stories up. And so I typically had news stories a day before MTV News itself because I was getting it from the, people out there in the country who were emailing me these stories. And then it was, I think around 93. Um, and I got an email from a guy in, in university in Champaign, Urbana, Illinois. And he says, yeah, Adam, uh, I've got this thing and uh, I wanted to try it out. Let me guess. Let me guess. 
Was his initials M-A? Yeah, Mark Andreessen. Says, Adam, check this HTTPD server out. I think I had like 1.4 or something. And I set it up and like, oh, Mosaic browser. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. And that blew my mind. And I, I wound up leaving MTV maybe a year later to start my own company because I was like, this is it. This is, this, is, this is the real future, what's going on here. I'm just mucking around on this cable news business or cable business. And so, yeah, so that, that's really how I got sucked in very, very deep. And I saw that I could be much faster, much nimbler, do more fun stuff, less restrictions online. And it was, it was truly the Wild West. I mean, AOL wouldn't let you on the Internet, if you recall. And, you know, people were like, come on, man, give us a browser, give us a browser. And like, okay, you know, you got that browser and I just click all those warnings like it's dangerous out here anything could happen which is exactly what you wanted and after that you know AOL became a dial-up company you know <laughs> everything got sucked into the internet it was beautiful it was really an exciting time Okay, only one more question back in MTV days because we're going to make the transition through the web here. Were you there when Michael Jackson required that everybody call him the king of pop? Yes. Oh, this is, uh, this is one of my favorite stories. So there were many, many deals that were made and they typically revolved around the Video Music Awards. So if you wanted to have an artist of stature appear, then you maybe would have to play some other video by the same label or some other, you know, favors were made, deals were done. And so we had for uh, Michael Jackson, he was going to perform and we had a whole Michael Jackson weekend planned around the premiere of his latest video. I don't remember what that was. And of course, teasing that he would be on the Video Music Awards. And the way it worked on MTV is you tape on Thursday, you tape for Friday and Saturday. And uh, wait, on Thursday, you tape for Friday, Friday, you tape Saturday, Sunday, Something like that. Somehow we threw in a Monday somewhere. But you would, we wouldn't work on the weekend, but it was the weekend. So <laughs> so we all did our, our bits, 48 hours worth of programming. And then I got a call Friday night. It's like, oh, you all got to come in tomorrow because someone messed up. And the, the, the deal was every single time you say Michael Jackson, it had to go Michael Jackson, comma, the king of pop. And so they made, now I don't even know if Michael Jackson cared. But we reshot the whole weekend just to make sure we didn't we didn't screw anything up with that deal. And that's that's how political it was when it came to the deals. But it was all for the good. You know, we wanted Michael Jackson to be on the show, I guess. But there was some grumbling. <laughs> I can just imagine. Let's get out of MTV days. We already touched on this a little bit, but tell us about this getting on the web. What a concept, right? How did that happen? How are you this early adopter, this pioneer of the web? Well, it started, I've always been a, a tinkerer. So my love of radio started when I was um, 13. I got, a, I still have it, the Radio Shack 101 projects. And it's a, a breadboard and it has components and you connect them with different length wires and stuff. And so that's how I built my first transmitter, my FM transmitter. And, you know, that's how I kind of learned, kind of fell into radio because I needed something to, to play on my transmitter. And to, before I knew it, I was building a mixer and understanding how to mix in a microphone, etc. So my dad actually, he was into 
we were living in Europe and he was into all kinds of PR stuff, but it was online. And the first thing he brought home was a Minitel terminal from France. Yeah. Uh, and France was very, very sophisticated early on. Every household had this little terminal and it was meant for, you know, hotel reservations or uh, restaurant reservations and some, you know, news, etc. Turns out it was being used by uh, sex workers a lot. So they, they had to scuttle the project at some point because <laughs> there was some message board thing. So my dad had all these weird computers. And the one that I really grabbed hold of was the Sinclair ZX80, which was basically this plastic keyboard with a module on the back, which was the RF modulator. They hooked it into TV and you could write and load programs through uh, through a cassette. But I worked part-time at a computer store on, on weekends. And a buddy of mine, I think he might have had the, Vic, the Commodore VIC-20 at that point. But we built our own modems, our own acoustic modems. So we ripped apart old phones and we put them in little boxes so you could put the, the phone cradle right on top. And, and it worked, you know, it was like, like three baud a minute or a second, whatever, but it, <laughs> it worked. And so that was kind of my introduction. Then, you know, bulletin boards and that kind of thing that followed. And then I put everything aside as my radio and, and television career started when I was 19 in the Netherlands. And then when I got to the States in 87, the first thing I did is I went to 47th Street Photo, and oh I God. bought a Mac Plus with a SCSI external hard drive, 20 megabytes with a big SCSI cable. <laughs> Remember to terminate. <laughs> you could you could plug an RV into that thing. It was so much power. <laughs> and so, and, and a 1200 baud modem. And I was using it for CompuServe because I, I, I discovered CompuServe by then. I thought yeah. that was phenomenal. Prodigy was coming around around that time, I think. That was a Sears deal. But all of this stuff was nothing because I kept hearing people say, no, the internet, man, the internet. It's impossible to get on, but all the cool kids are there. And so that's, I just fooled around night after night until I finally got a dial-up account with Panics New York, figured out how to get the TCP IP stack running, and I was off to the races. And from there, as I said, it just progressed into, into the web. A guy from Sun Microsystems, Carl Jacob, who later, I think he's still a... Uh, an advisor. I don't know. He wasn't. He might have been on Facebook board at some point, but he was at Sun, and he said, "Check this out, Adam." And at this time, I had a 56k frame relay in my house. I mean, look out! I'm cooking with gas now. <laughs> and and so he streams a sound file from San Francisco to my computer in New Jersey. I'm like, "That's it, man. Why am I mucking around in this cable business? This this is where I got to be." And so I'd literally, I'd, I'd finished the, uh, the number one video on the top 20 countdown. I said, that's it. I'm, I'm leaving MTV. I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to do something on the internet. I don't know what it is, but that's where the future is. And I'm done. And I'm out. And I left. I never looked back. Went right to my radio syndicators and started a company called OnRamp. And the first thing we did was this 56 annual Grammy Awards. We did a, what we called a cybercast. With one main spot, two sponsors, Visa and Casio. Casio was sponsoring because they'd just come out with digital cameras that you could connect via a serial cable to your computer so you could then upload the photos. And we were using CUC Me video, you know, the little one frame, <laughs> one frame a second. And it was oh a tremendous success. And, and we even brought a T1 line into the Shrine Auditorium. And it was cowboy stuff, it was really crazy. But it was all East Coast, right? It wasn't until I met the West Coast guys that I really understood how nuts the world was. And that's where I met such luminaries as Mark Cantor and Dave Weiner 
and John C. Dvorak, John Perry Barlow. And I really didn't know that much about the culture of Silicon Valley and computers other than the thing I held in my hand. So these were like profits, man. It's like, wow, there's a whole nother thing going on out here. In fact, I was still at MTV, I think, and Halsey Minor uh, yeah. gets in touch with me. He said, we got this thing. We'll do this pilot. It's called CNET. Come on out. I'm like, okay. So I go out and they, they had an idea. They brought in Kevin Wendell, a top heel. He helped build the Fox, the Fox network, not Fox news, but the, the Fox television station network. And they were going to do like a cable channel or something called CNET. And, and, we're, and, and they had a whole bunch of people in just shooting all weekend long. I'm, I said, this should be an internet thing. Really? He says, ah, oh, yeah, good idea. What should we do? I said, well, do you have CNET.com? No. All right, hold on a second. I register CNET.com. I ran their email for, for at least a year. Just, just, just uh, IMAP or pop, pop three email boxes for them. They never had an idea that it was going to be CNET, the, the computer network, the way, the way it turned out to be. So there were all these things that were just coming across. That really enamored me with if you sit down with Mark Cantor and he's smoking some weed, man, you could you can listen to that guy for hours. Like, wow, these guys are nuts. And and so that's how I kind of started to learn about again the tinkering side, RSS. This is what I learned from Dave Weiner. He was building the micro blogging, really. He was building RSS and an aggregator. And Mark had his multimedia stuff, and they're all with all of these different things happening. Meanwhile, I moved to Amsterdam at the end of 99 to go back. I had a Dutch wife, and she wanted to be near her parents. And they had cable modems. Now, this was cool because cable modems was not fast or anything, but it was always on. You didn't have to dial up. You didn't have to tie up a phone line. Napster was just happening. So people were like, holy crap, I'm sharing all this stuff, and I'm literally poking inside someone's hard drive and pulling MP3 files out, and it's all kind of working but it was all so slow. And that's when I came up with, I wrote a blog post called The Last Yard. And I had this idea that since the computer was always on, why couldn't we just have like the video file that you, that is, that you absolutely want to see instead of the experience of the day, which was click, wait, wait, download, click, open up with another program. It was video, it was like the real player starts to jerk open, you know, all this stuff that was crap. I said, well, wouldn't it be great if there's like some program that would run in the background, know when I want something I wanted to see was ready, would download it, but then would tell me later. Because, you know, once it's downloaded, then it's just one click, it plays. So what I don't know won't hurt me. That was my whole concept. And somehow when Dave, and I was very involved because I loved his product, Radio Userland, I said, well, this is a two-way system. You, you, you create an RSS feed on the blog, and I aggregate it, and I can read it on my end. Why don't we do like a file attachment? But it wasn't that simple. I had to go fly to New York, and I had to explain to him what I was talking about. And I, I think he probably thought I was a schmuck. <laughs> like, what's this Hollywood guy doing here telling me what to do? But, it, but he saw it. He saw the light. And then he – and I, I think by the time I was back in, in Europe, he had kind of coded it in. And for two years, we were testing this functionality, just going back and forth. and like, oh, cool. There's another 100 megabyte file that Dave uploaded last night in San Francisco. And I don't have to download it. I click it, plays right away. And it was all kind of fun, for me at least. Uh, and I, D Dave was working with Chris Leiden. I know that they had done some stuff, some radio, like his, his uh, radio program. But when I saw the iPod, yeah, that's when, that's when it all came together. I'm like, ah, because I looked at the iPod and that was not a, a digital Walkman or 
whatever people were saying. I looked at it and I said, that is almost exactly like the Sony transistor radio my grandmother gave me when I was seven years old that I have under the pillow. It was the same size. I said, this is a radio. It's a radio receiver. And now we can have the radio shows you, you know, subscribe was the word of the time. You subscribe and then this this little program is going to look for the new episodes or whatever. We were calling it episodes, I think. And it'll download it and put it on your iPod and Bob's your uncle. And that's where we started. Literally, that's where we started. And I'd started doing the Daily Source Code, which was a daily podcast. We didn't, we didn't even know what it was called at the time. And the whole point of the Daily Source Code was I was talking about what the developers were building because they were building more radios. That's it's like, oh, you know, the iPod or X and iPod or Lemon and all these. We didn't have apps. You know, we didn't have phones or anything. My God, the tools we have now is so unbelievable compared to, compared to then. So, yeah, and so that that just took off real fast. I mean, people grabbed hold. I say that um, uh, Tony Khan from WGBH, he was quite instrumental, unsung hero, because he really pulled NPR into the game early, early on. He was pushing them very hard, and that really gave it legitimacy. And, yeah, it just, I mean, it grew so fast. It was only a number of years. So so people have applied the moniker Podfather to you. Yeah. Does that? Is that accurate? Are you the father of podcasting? Well, then what's Dave Weiner? Is he the mother? I, I, I've heard I've heard people use Podfather with each of us interchangeably. That's fine. I'm 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 the last one to say I'm the Podfather, but that's what people say. Some people uh, say Adam Carolla is the Podfather. Ricky Gervais calls himself the Podfather. I don't think there's any one father of anything. I and mean, if you look at the lineage of, of what we're actually doing and how far back it goes through XML and the people who were involved in that. And luckily, there's now a whole new generation of developers who are expanding on the original podcasting RSS 2.0 format with the podcast namespace. So this is, this is just our role in the evolution, because you could also th- say that MP3 was extremely important in the whole podcasting game. And the and the eventual uh, licensing of that, so everybody could use it. These are really this is really the heroics. Is the people like Dave who make things that they cannot own. They cannot own a patent or a copyright because they know that it won't work if if one person has control. And this is what I love about podcasting. It is truly free speech in that you only need to be able to create an RSS feed a text file basically and a place to put your mp3 and you're in business you don't need anybody else and that's why no one has ever been able to own podcasting many have tried uh, myself i've given it a stab and i know for sure you cannot monetize the network this is impossible it's dumb and people who think they can do podcast networks i i'm happy to advise you why it's not going to work and it's you know it's become a part of the medium, part of the, the media landscape that is its own medium and is so powerful by its disintermediation and its decentralization. There, it's not a single person. Joe Rogan is not the most powerful person in the universe, but he makes up a part of uh, a fabric that is way beyond the realm of anything most people are exposed to in mainstream. And I think that this is clear that this is growing as people discover more and as people start to use their voice themselves more you were looking at more than over four million podcasts of which i think 
accurately about eight eight hundred thousand are are really active. That's a lot. <laughs> a lot of content. <laughs> but don't you think that Apple is close to controlling podcasting? No, they fucked it up. No, How? no, no. Actually, I made an error. I'm sorry. I should say that I made an error when Steve Jobs called and asked me to meet with him, which was mind-boggling. This was like I could not have been on a higher high, and. And he essentially, he was asking me for my blessing to put podcasting into iTunes and into the iPod. Like if I had said no, he wouldn't have done it, but it didn't matter. (laughs) What I've now come to understand when Steve is courting you, it's hot. And I got the hot, sexy Steve and was very enjoyable. But I made an error in that I always thought radios would be around. I'm a radio guy. So there's radios in cars, radios are everywhere. And the radio for podcasting is an app. And when Apple put it in, put podcasting capabilities into iTunes, I gave them the, our directory, which was, it was called iPodder.org. And it was a decentralized, actually a very cool directory with multiple country managers. And it all kind of flowed up into one centralized spot, but you could, it was, it was a great thing, but it had like 5,000 podcasts organized and categorized. So why don't you start with this? So first of all, what they did is they they used that, but they put all of the mainstream NPR type stuff on the homepage, which was disappointing. But because of this, Apple became the de facto on-ramp to podcasting because you had to be on the Apple podcast app. There's no doubt about it. It was the biggest one at the time. Now, that by itself is a gatekeeper function that shouldn't really be there. But Apple was a great steward of podcasting for a very, very long time. And the thing that happened in a weird way, which is a very unApple thing, the way I understand it. Their podcast app functioned in the old school way. It did the aggregation on your on your iPod or on your on your iPhone. It only talked to the Apple index to get the latest information, to get the latest update, really as a search, etc. Because of that, their API laid open and exposed for any independent podcast app to do the same thing. So we had this whole ecosystem, kind of unbeknownst to everybody, that had done two things. It had not moved in 10 years because, hey, if Apple's not doing a new feature, why do it? Why would a hosting company or anybody, hey, it's not Apple, why do it? So that's very destructive for creative uh, development. And the other thing is, and it happened in two different ways. One, Joe Rogan decided to, uh, to go exclusive with Spotify, and overnight, his podcast disappeared from every podcast app. And I thought, wow, okay, that's interesting. Why did it happen so simultaneously? Well, he removed his feed. No, but really he removed his feed from Apple. And so all these, so the whole ecosystem lost that. Then there was some famous deplatformings that happened in, in concert, Apple and Facebook and Twitter. It took down Alex Jones and a whole bunch of QAnon podcasts. I don't even care what it is. What happened is, They removed it from Apple. It went away from everything else. So this is a problem. If Apple doesn't want to have that on that platform, that's fine. But anyone else should be able to easily spin up an app and do this. And so that's where I decided to put my foot down and we had to create an independent index that is just that. It's independent. We don't care. You can replicate it, duplicate it. You can make your own index, but it is the index of podcasts. And we provide a free API so developers can just go ahead and do whatever they want, any kind of experience they want. So we, we wrestled that away from Apple, I think just in time, 
because when they did their big change to the subscription model, they, <laughs> believe it or not, the, the API changed. So all of these apps, again, had they not had the index, would have been dead in the water. And I think Apple has given up, you know, and, and, and a lot of developers were very upset. And I said, you know, have you ever paid Apple one dime for access to that API? No. And you weren't on their business list, my friend. They don't care about you. <laughs> they don't care. And they don't. And that's okay. So now we're in a little different position where we have big players, Spotify, now entering the mix, all trying to do the same thing that has been impossible for anybody to do, and that is own podcasting. And luckily, the podcast index now you know makes everything available so everybody can go off and do whatever they do and include or exclude whatever podcast they want. If you just want a knitting app podcast app, be my guest. It doesn't matter. And we, you know, we've been doing a few more things in that regard with what I call podcasting 2.0 to really solidify the capability for anyone to speak freely and not to have to wait for Apple to approve if you can show up on an app. I want university professors to put their lectures in and go home and upload their feed and it be available on 100 apps all immediately. We've, cre we've created that. That's now possible outside of Apple. But there's, it's, it's definitely some fragmentation going on. We need to back up a little bit because I think people may have missed this transition. When you start using the pronoun we, so we is this podcast index project. Yes. That's the we, and you're creating this index that is not dependent on Apple, Spotify, and all this other stuff. This is like, this is everything in podcasting. Yes, correct. Including QAnon, including oh, whatever, Alex Jones. I'm sure everything. it's all in there. Okay. Yeah. And this is a not-for-profit, a for-profit? It's an LLC, three partners, myself and Dave Jones. Now, he and I have been working on RSS aggregation projects for 10 years, just mucking around for our own, for our own bids, just screwing around. And Eric Mackey, who is very important because he understands legalities, keeps me out of jail, and understands how uh, a P&L works. But it's a value-for-value value project. And this is so an open project. And what I learned with No Agenda, the podcast that I've been doing with Dvorak for, for almost 15 years, is if you ask people to send you whatever they think your product is worth, you will be amazed at the success you have if you have an outstanding product. So this is, this is a core belief of mine. Silicon Valley, I call it value for value. Silicon Valley started pricing creative works really with, um, it goes much further back, but let's just say with the iTunes store. So if you want to buy the Beatles, I want to hold your hand 99 cents. Who determined that? Who may, and, and does that really represent the value to me? If I had to pay $99, I'll do it every single day for that song. It's one of the, one of the best love songs ever written. So when we first started asking for what is now known as maybe a Patreon model, you know, subscribe for $5 a month or $10 a month, we'll give you a t-shirt if you do $25 a month. John and I said, you know what? 
whatever this show was worth to you, just write that number down and send it to us. And we still got a lot of people sending $5, quite a few sending $50, and lo and behold, a whole bunch of people sent $500, which- $500 for what? That was the value they got out of the podcast. When I asked them, I said, "Really? what, what was the show worth to you? And by the way, what we've learned to do is on the next show, we'll thank those people and say exactly how much they gave us. You can, you can count the money that's coming in by just listening to our donation segment. This, came, this turned into a whole thing where numerology comes into play and people on Pi Day, they'll send $31.40, $314. I mean, these things are... It's, what? It's, yeah, 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 yeah. When you, you can't look in someone else's pocketbook. This is people negotiate against themselves all the time. Well, my show, is it really worth $5 a month for eight shows? I don't know, man. When you ask someone else, what was this one show worth? Oh, that was worth a hundred bucks easily. I loved it. Here you go. It was a hundred bucks. Someone might spend a hundred dollars easier than you or I. And if you just leave that to the individual, turns out that that is the magic to the value for value model. And we have put kids through school we're not, we're not, we're not billionaires or millionaires. We get what we deserve. And this is the model. This is the media model that, that we've developed and we've exported that to other, other uh, podcasts and helped them do this. And it, it really does include the, the fundamental part. My, my wife is a semi-retired nonprofit professional. She worked at Ronald McDonald house charities, many other nonprofits. And she said, the number one reason why people do not give to a cause it's because they're yeah. not asked. People forget to ask. So we're blatant. We're like, hey, man, the, the butcher shop you never went to and then it was gone one day, that could happen to us. So taking that into, into account, we knew that if, if we started the, on our own dime, we, we built the, the database, the index, we filled it up. Now, the hosting side of podcasting is still very distributed. It's a lot of small companies. 100,000 here, 100,000 there, 25,000 there. These are all small companies all serving their customers mainly with advice and teaching because someone shows up and says, I'm ready for my podcast. So they do a lot of educational stuff to help people use their system. They have so much benefit by being able to do things like not have an index aggregator paying all of their feeds 10 times an hour and sucking all those feeds out. I mean, that's just bandwidth they're wasting. They want new features. They want transcripts. They want chapters. They want location. They want seasons. All these things that were not possible because everyone used Apple as the central index. So we've expanded it with all these new features. And then all of a sudden, app developers come along and say, Oh, that's cool. I've been looking to make a better app. And with today's tools, you know, a web app is baked in, in a day, but we have many apps, you know, Android, iOS, I mean, at newpodcastapps.com, you can see all the, the apps and hosting services that provide these extra, these extra features. So we run purely on the donations that people give based upon the value. So it's, often it's developers. Like, this is so valuable. I get to, I get to develop this app. Here's $50. Thank you very much for keeping it running. And we don't take any salaries, you know, it would be great if one day we could, but that's not really not the point. This is this is to keep podcasting something for everybody so it's not owned by one central company. I want to use it. I don't want to get the platform guy. I could say something stupid 
And then, you know, okay, this is really critical because this is the final thing. The problem, as you well know, is advertising. Advertising is the issue. It is it is now used as a lever for political means, etc. But when Google first started with YouTube, they didn't care. They didn't care what you said. Throw your alien stuff, your conspiracy theories, the crazier the better. And the advertisers came along and went, yeah, I don't want my stuff anywhere near any of that. So, okay, the first thing you do is they say you're demonetized. No, you just, the ads are not running on your stuff. That's, you're not demonetized. They don't care about you. They don't want their advertiser to be exposed to whatever the advertiser is upset about. And then because it's such, you know, it, literally advertising is censorship because of the programmatic way that ads are thrown into every single piece of content, every news stream. That's what Silicon Valley runs on mainly. Advertisers have a lot of power by saying, okay, I can't trust you, uh, Google, to run me on your AdWords because I keep showing up on the on the uh, the white supremacy site, the self-harm site, all the stuff I don't want to be on. Okay, so they can fix some of that, but this is where you get the mechanism where you can easily organize online, whether your media matters or whether you're uh, sleeping giants or you can get together and say, oh, 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 that podcast. Yeah, Mr. Advertiser, you don't want to be on that podcast because this guy is a X, Y, Z, fill it in, whatever the person is. And the advertisers, the first thing they do is like, I'm done. I'm out. No problem. I don't want any controversy. So that lever has been applied. So that can be applied to anybody at any time. And. With that in mind, I said what we also need, so now we kind of have this uninterruptible distribution. We need uninterruptible money. We need to be able to have this supply of value going between the podcaster and the audience. And as we were looking at this, the Lightning Network, which is, it's layer two, but I call it Venmo for Bitcoin, has just come into into its own. And you can send real micro payments. One Satoshi is you know, 0.001 penny. And you can send those in one or 50, whatever you want. So we hook up the mechanism, believe it or not, value for value again, where you say, okay, this podcast that I'm going to listen to, it's definitely worth a dollar an hour. That's kind of my, I think any podcast, you listen to something for an hour, it's worth a buck. So I'm going to fill up my wallet here with $10. And every minute that I'm playing a podcast, one sixtieth of a dollar is being sent to that podcaster in real time. No intermediary direct from your app to the podcaster's wallet. Should you like something that the podcaster says, now in, in Silicon Valley land, you hit a heart or a like button. Here you hit a boost. You can send 500 Satoshis, which is, you know, now you're talking 10 cents. You could do 50,000 if you wanted, which would be like $12. This is working. So we implemented this nine months ago, and this flywheel is just turning, and we now have over a 1,000 podcasts doing this. They're immutable by design of the database, and they're receiving uh, value back for the value they provide in MP3 bits going into someone's ears with little bits of Bitcoin coming back. And I think that this is a model for all kinds of content moving forward. It's time-based, it's pleasure-based, it's value-based, the, price, the pricing mechanism is done by the person receiving the value, which in general, what is a television or an audio program worth? Nothing. It's not tangible. It's worth nothing. It's only enjoyment you get from it. And it's 
phenomenal when you see how people use this. They are they're sending special numerology, like, oh, 2112, that's my Van Halen number that I'm 2,112 sats. So that's, uh, you know, that's 10 cents. But there's also people sending much more. And they're truly supporting the podcaster in real time. And this is this is creating something. And I'm certainly dragging it uh, forward. So it has to become something because because <laughs> it's so exciting. Every minute of the day, there's little bits of value coming back for people who are listening to your podcast at that very minute. So just to back up for a second, and let me put the pieces of my brain back in yeah, my I head it's, here. It's, I'm trying to fit it all into one week. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a podcast called Remarkable People. And let's say that I have last week's episode was Cody Keene, and he was speechwriter for Barack Obama. He drops a lot of great tips about how to be a great speaker and speechwriter. Mm -hmm. So me as a business person, I listen to that and well, I say, hmm, I would have paid five bucks to hear that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now what does Guy do? How do I get into this? Right. This mechanism where now Joe Blow, who loved Cody Keenan, is now saying, I'm going to send Guy five bucks. How does that like? Well, I don't even know where to begin for that. Well, it's it's really simple. All you need to do is have a, a podcaster wallet on on the podcast side, on the receiving side and mm -hmm. a, a new app, uh, a podcasting 2.0 app. And that has a wallet and you literally fill it up with 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 Satoshi's, which there's a, a lot of ways to do it, but now you can even get the Strike app from from the App Store, and you can connect it to your debit card. For those of you not familiar with the term, a Satoshi is one one-hundredth millionth of a Bitcoin. It's named after the person or people who created Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto. That is the the onboarding is the biggest is the biggest hurdle. It's, it's, I would say right now it's analogous to the old days of podcasting when we used to say, subscribe to the show, find the little RSS icon, right click on it, co <laughs> copy link, take it over to the, your subscribe, yeah, and then paste it in and hit go, and now you're good, you think. So we're at that level of getting your money into a Bitcoin wallet. There's also a lot of ways you can get it. People will give you some, just send it to your wallet, just to get, we're doing programs to, to onboard people. But once that part is done, that's pretty much it. Then it's just go to, in the podcast app, search for the podcast and then say, okay, it'll probably have a default of uh, 50 or a hundred Satoshis per minute, which will wind up around your dollar and a half per hour. You can change that per podcast. And then you just start listening. When you stop listening, the payment stops. If you pick it up again, it starts paying again. And Right now, I use Simplecast. So I put it to Simplecast and it goes to six different places. Right. Do I stop that and go only with your thing or no, is that another? No, that's that's the beauty of it. If you go to podcasterwallet.com, all you have to do is authenticate that it's your feed and, and we actually add that in for you at the at the index. We'll add your, your we yeah. call it the value block. And we'll, sh and, we'll, and we'll hook you up with any number of wallet providers right there. So you say, oh, okay, I'll use, there's a lot, you know, free. <laughs> they, they just store your money with them and you can ship it right out. You can set up your own independent node that you can have running in your home. Again, this is, freedom always requires an extra step. So yeah. <laughs> no, there's no help desk that's gonna, that you can call when you forget your 
password or screw it up. There's lots of people willing to help, but, and once it's running, it's running, but there's always a little more work required. And it's no surprise that of the 1,000 podcasts we have now, at least 35, 40% are Bitcoin and crypto podcasts because they have a jump on understanding the the mechanism of, of, of crypto. A lot of people just like, ah, crypto. But, you know, it, 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 the system will work with the digital dollar. It'll work with any any digital coin that anyone comes up with. So if uh, Bitcoin is, is uh, somehow outlawed, which is doubtful, we could still use the central bank digital currency because it's scriptable money. That's that's the beauty of it. You can now send and receive money with computer scripting. It's 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 beautiful. So in your world, to take an extreme example, Joe Rogan, who is exclusive with Spotify, he's a dinosaur now. I mean, he... well, he's that's a very interesting question. Uh, first of all, he's a good friend, and I've been on his show three times, and I love him yeah. to, to bits because he totally recertified me as someone who matters in the podcasting world because it's 18 years ago. Most people never heard of me. Joe is this generation's Tonight Show, and I don't care what he's on. Yeah. He's the Tonight Show, and okay. the Tonight Show is is not an hour jam-packed with commercials and funny bits and jokes and let's move it along. It's a three, a three, three-and-a-half-hour sit down, talk with someone who's super interesting or not. You can skip it all, all together if you want. So he really utilized the medium. And he also created an entire layer of comedians and talent that otherwise would not have been exposed to podcasting and might not have. I mean, there's huge careers have come out of people who have been on Joe Rogan and started their own podcast to supplement their existing business, which is being a comedian and touring, etc. Not everything has to be has to be money. That said, I believe that he, even though I'm not intimately familiar with his deal, but I know that he can really do whatever he wants, but I think he does self-censor. The pressure is bigger. He feels there's more responsibility. There's always strings that come with something with, with a big paycheck like that. Mm-hmm. I personally think he may be back when, when three years is up. I don't know if I, mean, I think he was probably doing about $10 million a year in, in revenue as is, but he was in the sights of the cancel cannon. This is the problem. He cannot mm-hmm. come back and do ads. It's just, not, I mean, yeah, limited. Some right. advertisers will always stick by him, but a lot will My get pillow. <laughs> My pillow. Well, then this, is, this is the kind of the thing. Advertising on podcasts, I'm sorry, guy, but... It's not a big business. It's never, it never will be. Yeah, they say it's a billion dollars, but it's all B. It's all C and D level. It is my pillow, my, nothing against my pillow, fantastic product. Find the guy very entertaining, but it's not BMW. It's not pharmaceutical. It's not telecom. These are the big advertisers that are not in podcasting. And there never will be because these guys don't want any controversy. It's, it's just too risky. They're not going to do it. So I don't understand why people are still so hung up on creating this advertising juggernaut. Spotify is not proving it at all. They're, they're losing monthly active users overall. And ha- I think they're having a hard time converting music listeners to podcasting inside their app. It's, it's, it, it, it's not proven. People like listening to scary uncomfortable stuff. This is why true crime is so big. Biggest category in podcasting, true crime. People love hearing scary, gory, 
stuff that kind of feels like you shouldn't be listening to it. They love this. I've been in programming all my life in television radio program. This is what people like. They want that. They also want their mind to be challenged with unconventional thoughts. And yes, people may want to sometimes hear a crazy kook talk about QAnon stuff. It doesn't mean that that person is evil or that you're you know, being uh, sucked into a cult. I watch uh, Rachel Maddow too, you know, I, I, I listen to Kara Swisher as much as I can. You know, that, it's beautiful. It's still a listen. It's still valid. So, you know, I want the negative boost so I can suck it back out of her wallet. Give it back. No, but the podcasting is such a beautiful place still, Guy. And, and, and it is because it's just impossible to control. It's way out of control. It, it, there's no way that a company can try and harness. I tried it myself. I set up a podcast network in 2006. Steve Jobs said it would be a good idea. And he got me in with Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia yeah. and, and Ron from Sherpalo. I mean, these were the top, top VCs who I disappointed completely with, with none of their money coming back to them. It can't be done. It just can't be done. But individually, this is what's so beautiful. I mean, I, we have one podcast, it's two guys, and the family does it. I mean, it's work. It's real work. It, it, we're, we're working on it all the time, but we don't need, you know, staff to do things. You'll never make money that way. So you can do a lot yourself, and there's no need to try and expand with more in a network. Everything is its own island, and each island has its tribe around it. So now I'm I'm crossing over with, with your tribe, and... People who listen to me will now check out your show and vice versa. And that's how it starts to expand. And that's the discovery thing that Silicon Valley keeps thinking they can fix with podcasting. But it's not fixable. It's not meant for that. It's not like YouTube. It's, it's not a quick, it's not like TikTok is the ultimate YouTube. That's why TikTok is kicking everyone's ass. It's 40 seconds. Boom, done. Next one. It's like top 40 radio uh, on, on crack. Um, but that's not what podcasting is. You know, Top 40 Radio on crack, you can make so much money. Instagram, that man, the ads are phenomenal the way it's integrated. This is so smart, but that's not going to work with what we're doing here. It's just not. It's just not. You know, and everyone, you, you may have a sponsor who sponsors you for a million dollars for the rest of your life. That's something that, that is you and it's who you bring to the table, who you are. It's not something you can do by calling your agency and saying, give me some podcasting. It's just not going to work that way. rethink my entire approach to podcasting after this. Well, what is your approach, guy? What is your approach I'm, to podcasting? Well, if Joe Rogan is a dinosaur, I am like freaking amoeba. I mean... <laughs> no, but see, I disagree because you you speak to remarkable people. Right. You do remarkable things with remarkable objects. You have a remarkable uh, device, which I've been reading about. You're, you're going to get one. You're interesting to listen to. You're interesting to watch. And I think if you want, I don't, I don't know uh, if you have any, wait for it, monetization strategy on this, uh, on this product, but you know, maybe you just want to sell books. Maybe you just want to sell devices. It doesn't, that is probably more of a valid 
monetization uh, strategy than any. And, that, you know, why wouldn't a college professor do lectures to sell himself or herself as a great class to take? These are all perfect reasons for podcasting. As I look back over my career, I think that the work I'm doing in podcasting is the best work I've ever done in my career. I, I'm with you. I am so, <laughs> I've, I've been in broadcasting for 40 years since I was 15. The most fun, I've, and I've also, this last job, if you call it that, no agenda, running on 15 years, longest I've been in a job, longest I've been without an employment contract, longest I've been living paycheck to paycheck, like, wow, who knows what'll come in next week. But the fun that I have, and and and, and this is the final thing that, that I would say about podcasting. With radio, we learned the way to grow your audience is really, there's only two ways you can, well, three ways. Uh, you can do stuff on location, which always works. Radio stations, going on location, doing at the local soda fountain, whatever it is, you know, at the local fair, always works. You can also put people on the air with phone lines, or you can read there. We used to read postcards, and now, of course, it's email. So that that's kind of it. The, we took this to a next level, and the first thing we said is all our data is open. We have no copyrights, except on our faces. You can do whatever you want. And, and all the show notes, everything is in XML. I learned that from Dave, make it machine readable. So we have people who have built search engines. We have every one of our episodes, there's new album art because we have at least 15 artists competing while we're doing the show to make the art that we'll choose. And there's a place for it, the No Agenda Art Generator. We didn't build it, we don't maintain it. Some guys who make t-shirts, mugs, hats, hoodies, whatever, they set up No Agenda Shop. They get art from the art generator, they split the money with the artist, and they give us a donation from time to time. I don't know how much it, I mean, yeah, I guess it's a third, maybe not. I don't care. Uh, I don't have to have any meetings. I don't have any, no, uh, no licensing agreements. They just do it and it's done. Jingles, mixes, SEO, all of this is done by our audience who we early on called producers. You're not listeners. You are a producer of this show. And you show up with one of three things, your time, your talent, or your treasure. We need treasure to, to pay the bills. But if you are a lawyer and you've heard something about mandating vaccines, you know, what is your professional opinion? We have constitutional scholars. We have doctors, nurses, EMS. We have many people in government. In Everyone has a story. It's what Dave Weiner would call sources go direct. And it's not quite direct, but it is direct in the fact that they will send me their information verbatim. I can share that with the audience. So we're really, we're information routers. We play 40 to 50 clips per show of mainstream that we then deconstruct and say, okay, well, here's what I think is really going on with this. And it is, I, I, it's only twice a week, but it, I love my job, guy. I feel the same thing. I love my job. And I want many people to be able to love it the same way I did without any restrictions. We've done it for 18 years. We, we can keep it open. We can keep it going. And uh, I intend to do that. I intend to keep that alive for as long as I can. If this is the first time you've listened to the Remarkable People podcast, you may not know that the Remarkable Tablet Company sponsors the Remarkable People podcast. The Remarkable Tablet is all about focused, helping you do your best and deepest thinking. So I ask each guest how they do their best and deepest thinking. Remarkable People Podcast, sponsored by the Remarkable Tablet Company.
This last question is how do you, Adam Curry, do your best and deepest thinking? In the shower, without a doubt. The shower, uh, I can, my wife will be like, you've been under there for 45 minutes. Say, yes, but I, I know how to do it now. I've figured it out. That and that's my best thinking. But passively, I will almost always at night take a, a problem, not, not a problem, but something I'm trying to figure out or trying to solve. And if, I, and if it's not something immediate, I will, I will make one up like, oh, if only I could make a command line script that could do this, this or this. I'm just... Every night I have to give my brain something and I wake up in the morning and I use it. Oh, I, my brain is processed. It, it helps me get to sleep and it, it does some processing. And um, it's a, I love this skill because I can take it something complicated and put it in my head. And the next morning it's maybe not solved, but it's always clearer. So subconsciously, but really in the shower is when I, when I connect the, the bits, you know, it's like, okay, if I have that over there and this fits into that and then, and it's usually technical stuff. I can't develop my way out of a paper bag, but I understand it. I understand how it fits. And I think you're, you're very similar in understanding how complex systems come together, how they work and, and, and how you, how you can actually uh, attach part A to part B. There, there's real connectors there. Well, my thinking is getting a lot less effective because we have water rationing here in California. So the showers are shorter. Right. That's right. You got fired. You know, why are you living in that hellhole? I mean, I was reading in a diary, there was some guy, he was doing a journal in like 1870 or something, and he's writing about California. This place is a hellscape with fires and mudslides, and like 1870... It's always been that way. This is not new. It's, and I lived in Cal. I lived in San Francisco. I lived in Los Angeles. So beautiful. The nature is so beautiful. But oh, man, I'm happy to be in Texas now. I'm in Hill Country, Texas. I'm, I'm picking it out here, which is filling up with Californians, I've noticed. So there you have it. Adam Curry, pioneer and podcaster, podcasting pioneer. If you're not old enough to have seen MTV, Go look at some of the archives. MTV defined the culture, the pop culture in particular, of the 1980s. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. My thanks to Julie Masters. She introduced me to Mark and made this episode possible. My thanks to Jeff C. and Peg Fitzpatrick, who helped define this podcast. Until next time, wear a mask, get vaccinated, wash your hands, Be safe, be healthy. If nothing else, do it for the kids because kids under 12 cannot be vaccinated yet. All the best to you. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.